The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. Piecing together a big narrative requires your focus and attention. And it requires me to uh, stick to my text that I've uh, put together in this particular sermon. If um, you get lost or you have questions about some things, uh, there are copies of the sermon. And if for some reason they're taken, they're not, most of the time they're not always taken. But if for some reason there are, I'd be glad to make, make you a copy as well. The beginning of John's Gospel... John wrote this, in Jesus was life, and the life was the light of men. Let me pray. Father, I do ask that through your Holy Spirit poured out, proceeding from the Father and the Son, the blessed word that we now open and eat because men cannot live by bread alone, that the light of the world, Jesus Christ, would shine brightly. For we need to see him today. In his name we pray. Amen. There are two observations from John's gospel that we need to make uh, before we get to the particulars of John 8. And uh, these will, will help us not only this morning but over the next remaining five weeks or whatever it is we have left in the I Am series. Uh, the first is that when... When John introduces his gospel in chapter number one, he does so as a retelling of the creation account in Genesis. But it's important to note that instead of telling us about a physical world being created, John is telling us how Jesus brings recreation or new creation through new life. The life he is giving, and he's giving it to every part of the already created world. So John tells us that in Jesus was life. And that life was the light of men. And this metaphor of, of light then shows us that life cannot be disconnected from light. God said in uh, Genesis 1, let there be light, there was light, life follows. And today, in your neighborhoods and towns and villages where your kids go to school or where you do business, people are exhausting themselves trying to find life, but they won't first come to the light of Jesus Christ who is life. And so they'll never find life because they do not know light, the light of God in Christ. So this retelling of the Genesis account now focused on Jesus bringing new creation to every part of the already created world includes humans, men and women, boys and girls who will repent of their sins and by faith turn to Jesus who is the light and life of the world. And we invite you to him today. 
We invite you to him today. The second observation has to do with the relationship then between Jesus, the Jews, and the world. N.T. Wright makes this point clear. We'll put the quote up on the board. He says it so much better than I could have. So here it is. What the covenant God does and with and in Israel is what the creator God is doing in and with the world as a whole through Jesus of Nazareth. And this is John's message. From, from start to finish as he relates to us the life of Christ. That God is doing something unique through Jesus for Israel. But as perhaps the most well-known verse in all of the Bible tells us, John 3.16, For God so loved the Jews that he gave his one and only begotten Son. That's how it goes, right? No, how, what does it say? For God so loved the He gave his one and only Son. What God is doing uniquely in Jesus for the Jews, he is doing for the entire world. World, And we need to keep in mind that when God formed his people Israel, he formed them with a very specific vocation that they would be the light to the nations. And that's all through the Old Testament. In fact, some of the, some of the, most, uh, some of the harshest condemnations against Israel as a nation is that they allowed the darkness of the world to invade them and overtake them so that they were not the light to the world that God had intended for them to be. But with the coming of Jesus, who is shown to be the faithful Israelite, Jesus of Nazareth, who takes up this vocation then, this uh, desire of God in forming a people is fulfilled because Jesus, the faithful Israelite, is now that light shining for the world, brightly for all of the world to see. And not just for time, but as the song says, but for eternity. Now those two observations should be kept in mind anytime you read the book of John, but especially as we go through these I am statements. Because we all know the impact of shining light when we're looking for something Especially under a bed. I don't know how many times you've had it happen to you, but I tell you it's just crazy how many times I drop something and it rolls under a bed or bounces under a bed or something and you can't see it and you, you, you got to say, bring me a flashlight. And when you shine the light, immediately there's mercy and judgment. Mercy because you, you can see the thing that you're looking for. And judgment, because all of the squatters that now are living under your bed that have taken up residence, you know, since you did spring cleaning, if you ever do spring cleaning, and you go like, oh, no, that's horrible. Look underneath there. How are we living in this house, you know? And um, it's a judgment. It's a judgment. And this is what light does. When Jesus comes on the scene, he does so as light. And the light directs people out of their darkness and at the same time exposes those who desire to remain in darkness. And that's important to remember. Because what was true then is true today as well. 
Which is why it is vital for the church when it preaches Jesus Christ that we do not preach Jesus as a moral man, a moral teacher, did a few nice things for some people, at the end of his life was misunderstood and died a terrible death. And his memory kind of lives on today. Isn't it wonderful? And all throughout our region, and all throughout our nation, there are churches open today where where ministers will stand up and all they will present, if they present Jesus at all, is a moral Jesus who did nice things for people. And we must resist this. And instead, we we must preach Jesus as the apostles preached him, the crucified Christ who was an offense to the Jews and foolishness to the Greeks. Because only when we are willing to preach that message do we bring the light of God's mercy and the message of God's judgment. The light of mercy to those in desperate need of mercy and the warning of the returning Lord Jesus Christ who is coming to judge the living and the dead. This is what we saw last week when Jesus, who had just fed 5,000 people and they wanted him to be their king, says to the Jews the most offensive thing you could possibly say, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part of me, and they leave. The pressure is felt in, in Christianity in America because of the resistance. And there are churches all over the place that are watering down apostolic truth for the sake of trying to gain an audience. Now, it's important then that we connect what happened between the rejection of Jesus in Capernaum, what I was just talking about when Jesus says these offensive things, right after the feeding of the 5,000. And then through chapter 7, in this ministry of Jesus in the temple during the Feast of Booths, which Pastor Mike preached on on the day of Pentecost just a few weeks ago. And we need to understand the opposition that grows from their rejection. I think kind of the summary of verse to to kind of get that in mind is chapter 7 verse 32 that when the Pharisees heard that the people murmured such things against him that the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take Jesus. Rhonda did a great job of kind of reading that text for us and helping us see how The people were confused about who Jesus was, but they were murmuring against him. We know that from chapter 6, and that murmuring then reaches the ears of the religious leaders. The religious leaders then take a cue from the people, and they gather their officers together, and they say, we can take him now because he's losing popularity with the people. So here's here's our opportunity. But John tells us that they were not able to do so. And you have these two statements in chapter number 7, in verse number 6, that Jesus says what? I'm going to turn my page here. He says, my time has not yet come. And then if you see it again in verse number 30, 
that they sought, uh, they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him. Why? End of verse number 30. Because his hour had not yet come. And what G- G- John means is that Jesus is protected from the evil intentions to put him to death. And his protection is coming from the sovereign Lord who has predestined and predetermined all of the events of the life of Jesus, including when he would die and the manner in which he would die. His hour had not yet come. They couldn't drag him out to a field somewhere and beat him to death. They couldn't drag him into a back alley in the middle of the night and put a knife in his chest. His hour had not yet come, either for when he would die nor the manner in which he would die. But Jesus isn't presumptuous about this. In verse number 1 of chapter 7, we're told that after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry because the Jews sought to kill him. And this is just as the Feast of the Booths or Tabernacles is unfolding. So after this opposition begins to form, Jesus is aware of how in in, uh, Jerusalem and among the religious elite, they're out to kill him. He does not act presumptuously. He does not say, well, you know, I've got the blessing of God and I'm all protected, so I'm going to go out here and stir up some trouble. That's not what he does. The carefulness and humility that Jesus demonstrated in his life in service to his Father and in service to his people and in service to the world is something that you and I must consider in very dangerous and spiritually dark times. That we do not act presumptuously. Jesus shows himself to be the light of the world, but he doesn't do it on his own or in his own flesh, does he? And so this this invitation, this this work, this great work of grace that Jesus is the light of the world can can be uh, given uh, in all of its fullness, not only to the people at that time, but of course to us as well because it is a path of mercy and it is a path of judgment. But in case you're worried, I do think that there does come a time when Jesus steps out and opposes the forces of darkness because the forces of darkness must be met head on. How else will the message of mercy and the message of judgment Get out there unless people are willing to stand up and say so. As the feast in chapter 7 kicks off, Jesus initially indicates that he's not going to attend the festivities, but then he does come to the feast and he faces the opposition. And then it is within the context of rejection and opposition that Jesus offers himself as water to thirsty people, that they can come and drink and as Again, Rhonda read earlier, John connects this to the coming of the Spirit who fills the lives of people who believe on Jesus, that Jesus is the one that can satisfy the thirst of their life. And after that takes place, after this announcement, Jesus spends the night in a very familiar place in chapter 8, verse 1. You've got a place like that, a place you go to rest, to refresh, to um, pray, to get alone. For Jesus, it was the Mount of Olives. And he goes there, 
And then early the next morning, chapter 8, verse number 2, he comes back into the city. He goes into the temple, and all the people come to him. He sits down, and he begins to teach them. Now, I'll just be honest. I don't know exactly what to make of the inclusion of verse 3 to verse number 11. And commentators are all over the place. It's the story of the woman caught in adultery, and they're going to stone him, and Jesus writes in the, in the ground something. We don't know what he writes. Most, uh, most scholars today believe that that was inserted later, that that was not originally there in John's text. If you want to talk about that, come on Wednesday morning or Wednesday night. We can talk a little bit about that. Um, I'm not going to include it in mine because I don't think it fits best with the story John is telling, which from verse number 2 then really picks up in verse number 12. When Jesus is teaching in verse number 2, they're sitting down, they're listening, and then he speaks to them and he says to them, I am the light of the world. It appears to me that in the temple... He is saying, he is teaching, and he makes this clear that he is the light of the world. Now you might recall in the first I am, uh, the bread of life, the focus is on faith or believing. But here we see that the focus is on following. Jesus speaks again unto them and says, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness but shall have the light of life. Now here's a key to remember about following. We'll put it on the screen. Maybe it'll help you to think a little bit about this. To have true faith is to take hold of God's initiative in your life and to follow the light of Jesus as revealed in his word through the church filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus would have known nothing of individualism. He would have only known of a calling together of a people who were following him. Individuals, yes, respond by faith, but together we follow. We take hold of God's initiative in our lives. We follow the light as revealed in God's word. We do it within the context of the church, filled with the Holy Spirit, so that as a body of disciples... We are following Jesus, who is the light of the world. And Jesus tells us, right? If you want to escape the chaos of darkness, you must walk in the light. So again, verse 12, Jesus spake unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have what? The light of life. You want life? You've got to follow the light. If you refuse to follow the light, you'll never know life in this life and certainly not life in the life that is to come. What an offer. Just as God dispelled the chaos of darkness when he said, let there be light, Jesus offers the opportunity for people to step out of the chaos of darkness and into the order of light which is life. And you cannot truly live this life. And you certainly will have no life in the future of eternity unless you are taken out of the darkness and placed into the light of God's salvation. Now, we shouldn't be surprised to find that religion offers 
people the opportunity to stay in the chaos of darkness. Again, if you were to reach back into chapter number 7 and then all the way into the first part of chapter number 8, there are objections upon objections upon objections to Jesus by the religious people. And with all of the, not just world religions, the confusion of world religions, but with all of the self-salvation plans now being offered to Americans by the influencers on the internet or whoever they might be, what we have to remember is that there's nothing new under the sun. The same reason people reject Jesus today is why they rejected Jesus when he stood in front of them and said, I'm the light of the world. I'm the bread of life. Now, it's not my point in the sermon to like, you know, deal with each of the objections. We're going to put them up for you. Um, I'm going to read them. I'll just have a very brief comment on them, but I want to make note of them. There are seven of them. They dismiss Jesus in chapter number 7, verse 15, because he doesn't have a formal education. He doesn't have letters. He didn't go to rabbinical school. He was the son of a carpenter. I, I think it's interesting when people find out that I never, I never, ha- I, don't, I don't possess one college credit. If I were to get a college degree, I'd have to go to like day one, whatever the first class is. I'd have to sit down in whatever that class is and start my long journey to a college degree. People are generally kind about that, but they weren't kind about that towards Jesus. You don't have any formal education. Who do you think you are? Secondly, they dismiss Jesus accusing him of having a devil. And this is a reoccurring objection to Jesus. You think you're from God? Nope, you're actually from the devil. In 7, 26 and 27, they dismiss Jesus because they're too familiar with him. Hey, we know where you're from. We know where you grew up. We know what you did. You can't be God. I mean, can you imagine somebody walking in this room next week that we really know and we've been around for a really long time, and they come in and they stand up and say, hey, everybody, by the way, I, I learned this week I'm God. And what would you do? Well, this is how they view Jesus. They dismiss Jesus, fourthly, because he hasn't done enough to impress them. Listen, if, if you were Messiah, you would be doing a whole lot more. Certainly when the Christ comes, more is going to be done than what you've done. And don't you hear that today? Well, if there was a God, if Jesus really cared about me, why did my loved one die? If there was a God, if Jesus really cared about me, why are there wars? Why are there disease? Why is there this? Why is there that? Can't be a God if all this bad stuff is going on. That's just a, that is an age-old objection. As is the next one, that they dismiss Jesus because they think they understand the Scripture. People all the time are dismissing Jesus because they think they know the Bible when they really do not. And the reason we read the account from Deuteronomy and emphasize that again in John is they dismiss Jesus because they say he bears witness about himself. Well, this is what you're saying about yourself. You don't have any corroborating evidence. And then finally, they dismiss Jesus because of his claims to be sent by the Father. You ever had somebody say, well, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to tell me if I can go to heaven or not? Who do you think you are to tell me that I'm wrong about what I think? 
It's interesting that Jesus takes these objections and he answers each of them. And we're not going to go through the corollary answers. We'd be here far too long. But you should do it in your own study and see how he responds. But instead I wanted to focus on something else that Jesus does because I think it's really instructive for us in our day. And that is in spite of, irregardless of the rejection and the objections, he remains faithful to his task. He doesn't get pushed off the mark. In fact, he tells them in verses uh, 28 and, and, and down through number uh, 32, he says, he says to them, when ye have lifted up the Son of Man. He identifies himself as the one that Daniel foresaw, and they know what it means to be lifted up. He says, when ye have lifted up the Son of Man, then ye know that I am he, and that I do nothing of myself but as my Father hath taught me, I speak these things, and he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. John says, as he spake those words, many believed on him. Then Jesus says to those Jews which believed on him, if ye continue, that is, follow in my word, then you are my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Jesus stays on the mark. He doesn't get pushed aside. How often the church so easily gets shoved off its message. And we get caught up in all of these, these unnecessary things when we should be direct about what does it mean that the Son of Man was lifted up? How can you actually be free? What does it mean to be a Christian? How can you follow Jesus? Objections are to be anticipated. People aren't going to just let us say what we want anymore in a nation that was once Christian but is now truly and thoroughly pagan. I mean, my goodness, did you see what happened at the, at the White House a week or so ago and the great celebration of the transgendered people? Did you see what happened at Dodger Stadium last night? When the transgendered nuns come out, a thumb in the face of the Catholic Church in, a, in the world or in America? You think people are just going to let us off, you know, nice little... No. But you can't get pushed off the mark. You've got to stay with what Jesus stays with. The offense of a crucified Christ. And he does this. And we need to remember this as well. That the church or Christian family, me or you, we are not impervious to returning to the chaos of darkness. Don't forget, these things that are happening in the rejection are happening around miracles. They're happening at religious festivals. They're happening in the temple. As I said some months ago now, evil has a way of creeping under the door of even the most sacred places, including your hearts and our church and so as the light is shining we need to ask well, what is the mark of a true christian not what is the mark of a churchgoer not what is the mark of a moral person not what is the mark of a hard-working american what is the mark of a true christian it is someone who believes that Jesus, the crucified one, is able to save them from their sins. And by faith, turning from their sins, they've trusted in Jesus. But a mark of a true Christian is someone 
who follows the light that is shining into the darkness of the world. We live in a dark world. We follow the light that is shining. And we follow Jesus into his victory over sin. We follow Jesus into his victory over death. And as we follow him into his victory, we bear witness to him as the light who can take people out of the chaos of their darkness and place them into real life. Real life. Hey, listen, if the light has been shining under your bed this morning and there's, there's all these squatters underneath there that, you know, you don't want there and you don't know what to do, you know, you might despair and think, you know what? It's just too dirty underneath there. It's just too dirty. And you might despair. And you might think there's no mercy available, only judgment. Well, if you feel that way, I, first of all, would like to talk to you. But I'm going to give you a little quote that has helped me because I have found myself in some of those situations as well. I use this quote occasionally, and I just think it's so powerful. By one of my favorite authors, Malcolm Geith, who said this, We who build so many hells on earth need to know that there is no place so dark, no situation so seemingly hopeless that cannot be open to the light of Christ for rescue and redemption. What I believe about the individual, I believe about our communities around us. You see, if the light shining mercy, and you're ready to step into that light, Please remember, good intentions will only take you so far. You have to actually, by God's grace, leaning into that grace, move out of the incoherent dreams and out of the making up of one's own reality. And you need to go to Jesus who will transform every part of your being because he is the light of the world. This is why we do not live by bread alone. We live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And while it is obvious that the darkness is rapidly intensifying, that does not mean that it is winning or that it will win. Darkness cannot overtake light. It is impossible because God said, let there be light. And light came and dispelled the darkness. That same God incarnate that is, in the flesh of humanity, hung on a cross, bearing our sin and shame. And in the depth of the darkness, he said, it is finished. And when he said this, the light of his salvation overtook the darkness of death. He swallowed up death in victory. And in that victory, then, he offers us the kindness of his mercy. And he warns us of the reality of judgment to come. And so I'm going to close with some confidence this morning. Confidence in God and Christ. And I'm going to rework that N.T. Wright quote at the beginning just a tad bit. What the covenant God does with and in Israel is what the creator God is doing in and with the world as a whole through Jesus of Nazareth. And what the creator God is doing in and with the world as a whole through Jesus of Nazareth he is doing in and with us as well. 
He is doing that work in us, in you, in me. And we pray in the communities around us. You can read the present day if you want with despair. I would recommend you not. But instead, you see it through the lens of the victory of God in Christ, whose hour did come, by the way, and whose hour will be completed, by the way, when he brings the fullness of the light of God's kingdom to bear and entirely drives out the darkness of evil. And so this morning, for our part then, take hold of what has taken hold of you through God's salvation, press into the faithfulness of a Christian life as you follow Jesus, who is Lord and King over all. For the bread of life is also the light of the world. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. May it stir us. May it make us ready Father, I do pray that if any in this room are confused as to whether or not they actually have life in Christ, may they talk to me or someone after church and get their questions answered. And for many, O oh Lord, who struggle with the day-to-day -day living of their Christian life, have created many hells and suffer for it, Pray that they too might see your mercy, that you can come in and clean out all of the squatters, all of the interlopers, that you can make them new. Jesus, thank you that you stood tall, and in the temple you said, I am the light of the world. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org.